The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. If you happen to have a Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to turn it on, turn it to the book of First Peter. We were there last week and the week before, and we're going to stay in the book of First Peter this morning. First Peter chapter 3 is our text this morning. I want to pray for our time together in the scriptures. Let's pray together. God, thank you today that you are a good God and you are still on the throne. Nothing surprises you, and you have not been caught by surprise by anything that happened yesterday or the day before or even today. You're an all-wise and all-good God, and we trust in you this morning. God, as we open the Scripture together, I pray that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, I've been trying to think of what life will be like after COVID, and so uh, many of you know if you're if you attend Story City Church and you're a regular here, you know that I'm a college football fan. Very specifically, uh, Clemson University is my alma mater. And I grew up watching Clemson football from the time I was seven until the time I graduated from Clemson University. I could have counted the number of home games that I missed on both hands. So my mind is already thinking, is there going to be college football this year? My mind is already uh, ahead, like, like, is this going to happen? And so I'm thinking of college football. I love college football, and I always have loved college football. I love the idea of being a fan of a team. Uh, I love the experience of being on a team. And so two years ago, when Clemson played for the national championship here in California, I took my son Deacon. He and I drove up to Santa Clara. We bought tickets outside of the gate. We didn't get them ahead of, uh, ahead of time because we knew tickets were going to be uh, lower. We waited. And, and so when we got there, we put two fingers in the air and said, we need two tickets. And this couple came by, this family came by, and they said, hey, do you guys need tickets? We said, yes, we do need tickets. And he said, well, we, uh, we actually have two tickets available. And we said, well, we're looking for two tickets, and so that'd be great for us. And so we began to talk, and one thing led to another. And actually, it turned out that his last name was Lawson. It was so strange, weird. I was like, well, this is weird. And so we bought tickets from the Lawson family, no relation to us. They're originally from South Carolina. We have no blood relation whatsoever. And so we bought tickets from them. We sat by them in the stands. And I love this experience. If you're a college football fan or you're a fan of any team, and you sat in a stadium or you sat in an arena, and you have this, I love the experience, right? Like we're all cheering for the same team. We're all wearing the same colors. We're all cheering for the same plays. We're all cheering in the same direction. So here I am in Levi Stadium with my son on my left, the Lawson family, no relation to me, on the right, and we're high-fiving each other, and we're hugging each other, and we had never met these people before in our entire lives, but it was as if we were Family. I love the experience of being on a team. I love the concept of a team. And there's some parallels to what we are together as a church. There's some parallels between team and church. And the Bible doesn't call it a team. The Bible calls it a family. I want to say to us this morning at the outset of this message that God's plan for you as a person is not a plan for you just as a person, but God's plan for you is also for us as a people. It's so much of what Paul writes about in the New Testament. So much of his message in the New Testament, his writings, the gospel is going to spread across the world as a result of believers living the gospel in the sense of a community. It's his message so frequently that we read. God's making a people, his message, we say. 
God's making a people, and that people would relate to God and to one another in such a way that the rest of the world is going to see it, and they're going to know it, and they're going to see God, and they're going to come into the presence of God. And that's what we see in the, in, in the Trinity, in the opening pages of Scripture. That's what we see as the people of God are journeying in the wilderness together towards the promised land. That's what we also see in the opening pages of the book of Acts when the people of God are together and they're praying together and they're sharing together and they're praying together, encouraging together, and they're all together in the New Testament. It's true, listen to me this morning, it's true that if you are a believer in Jesus, you have a personal relationship with God. But that personal relationship with God is in the context of the family of God. Now, there's this concept in our culture that says, I love Jesus and my faith is private. And I just want to say to us this morning that that concept is foreign to Scripture. If you love Jesus, your faith is not private. Your faith is in the context of a body of believers that the Bible calls a family. May I say to us this morning, we need each other. We need family. In fact, one of the ways that the Bible describes this metaphor is this metaphor of a family. But the reality is the idea of a family is so true that it really should not be a metaphor. We're not like family, right? Like, like I'm sitting in a stadium with my literal family beside me, last name, no relation family to the right of me. We're not like family in the church. We actually are family in the church. And I realize in 2020 that many of us have a distorted view of what family really is. But in the Bible, the Bible describes God as our father. The Bible describes Jesus as our elder brother. It describes you and I as brothers and sisters. Family is the way that the early church related to one another and how it identified itself. And so when we open up the New Testament, we see this word disciple. And after we get past the book of Acts, the word disciple disappears, and we no longer see disciple. What we actually see is this word that replaces it called a brother and a sister. And so when the world was introduced to Jesus, what we begin to realize is that God is, is a little bit more than we thought. God is actually family. And so the Bible tells us that when we're saved, we're adopted into his family as sons and daughters. Too often in church, I think oftentimes we're more interested in these statements about family than we are in the experience of being a family Itself. And so Paul and the New Testament writers begin to weave this idea of family all throughout the New Testament, and they talk about the fatherhood of God, and they talk about the believers' relationships with each other, and they talk about it so much that they just can't imagine and this idea, any idea outside of the fatherness of God and believers outside of our brotherhood. When we planted Story City Church, in 2016, what we planted was not just a gathering of people, which we all miss. What we, what we have is not just a Bible study. What, what, what we've got here is not a, just a 501c3. What we have here is a family. What we have is a family, and that family needs each other. Now more so than ever. And I want to say to us this morning that God's design and his purpose for your life is found and it's formed in the context of the family of faith. And so this morning, what I'd like to do from the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 is I'd like to try to draw a, a current attempt at, 
uh, from Scripture, uh, uh, what it is that we need from each other as a family. What is it that we need from each other as a family, especially right now? Well, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9 is going to help us understand some of these things. And Peter, the author, is going to give us six things. One thing is, the first thing is going to be how we think towards each other. The next four are going to be how we feel towards each other. And then the last thing that Peter is going to say is, this is how we should act towards each other. I think this is so applicable in the season we're in. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to look at it and read it with me this morning. If not, the words are going to be on the screen. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. And the Bible says, finally, all of you. Now, if you were tuned in last weekend, um, this was the same phrasing that Peter also used in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he said, and he talks about humility and submission. He says, not just the younger brothers, but he says, all of you. And he repeats the same phrase here just a couple chapters previous. Finally, all of you. Now, look at the words that he uses be like minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate. And then he ends with this same idea that we discussed last weekend. He says, and humble. Now look at verse 9. Peter says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So far in the book of 1 Peter, up to 1 Peter chapter 3, he's going to talk about how we should live as believers in the context of three different arenas. He's going to talk about how we should live in the context of government. He's also going to talk about how we should live in the context of a home. He's also going to talk about how we should live in the context of a vocation. Now, Peter's going to introduce a fourth arena and describe how it is that we should live. And that fourth arena is the idea of the church or the family. And so he's writing to believers discussing how it is we should interact with each other. And he says in verse 8, all of you. And so the first thing Peter is going to mention here and how we should interact with one another, what we need from one another, the first thing he's going to mention is how we should think towards each other. And this is the word that he used. He says the word that he used is like-minded. Now, when I'm writing my sermon notes for this week, the the first thing that came to my mind, I wrote it here in my notes, I said, is it possible to be like-minded in 2020? And we think of like-minded, and we think of like-minded, I think, because uh, we think like-minded in the sense that we all should think a certain way. We should all think the same thing. But as we talked about last week, that's uniformity. That's not unity. And that's what the Bible calls us to is unity. We have differences of opinions. It's true. My opinion of the pandemic has changed from March until July the 5th. And maybe there's some of you in our family here who say, uh, as, and, and let me tell you one of the reasons why it changed. On Friday, we got the notice that we could not sing in person. It was literally banned. It's not a suggestion. It's not a guideline. It's an order. We could not sing as a church together. And so my thoughts are beginning to change about the pandemic. My thoughts are beginning to change about how we are being led through the pandemic. And some of you, though, may say your opinion may be, yes, indeed, we should not sing. We have differences of opinion. What keeps me, though, from civil disobedience in this moment as your pastor is the way many of you feel about this. 
And so I, I just don't want to be a bull in a china shop with a different opinion. I want to be like-minded. We may have differences of opinion on politics. We may have a difference of opinion on what type of music you like to listen to. We may have a different opinion on whether we should sing with a band or with a choir or with an orchestra. We may have differences of opinion on a lot of different topics. Do you understand there were differences and arguments even in the early church? They disagreed on what foods they thought should be eaten. They disagreed on whether or not to keep the Sabbath, on which day to worship on. Paul and Barnabas disagreed on John Mark. The 12 apostles disagreed on who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so what the Bible teaches us about these disagreements is that we don't have to think alike on the non-essentials, but we do have to have one mind. One pastor described this idea of like-mindedness like this. He says, like-mindedness is cooperation in the midst of diversity. Jesus sort of hinted at this idea in John chapter 17 uh, when he said that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. What Jesus did not say here is that by this all men should know that you are my disciples if you are a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a Premillennial or Baptistic or Fundamental. What he did say was, but all men shall know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you find it interesting that Jesus even had to say this? The reason he had to say this is because Jesus knew we would not agree on everything. If we were going to agree on everything, and Jesus knew we were going to agree on everything, Jesus wouldn't have to make these kinds of statements. There's no challenge to love everybody in a congregation if we think exactly alike. The challenge comes. The challenge comes when we accept and we respect and we show concern for other Christians who do not agree with us. And so Peter's first instruction to the family what we need from each other is how we should think about each other, and the word he uses is like-mindedness. Now Peter's going to go on and use a few other statements that are, that are going to describe how we should feel towards each other, sort of an attitude, and the first word he uses is sympathetic. It comes from the Greek word sympathes, really, and that Greek word really comes from two words, pathos, which means to feel or to have an emotion or to hurt, and the second word means, is some, it means together. To feel, to have an emotion, to hurt, the second word means to come together. So the meaning we have in sympathy means is to feel an emotion or to hurt together. Biblically, I must share your sorrow. Biblically, as family, I'm called to share in your joy. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12.26 says, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's feeling what other people feel so you can respond with sensitivity to their needs. Does that resonate with you in this season? Uh, for the last few weeks, uh, the last week or so, 
my Netflix watching has been um, um, solely and only around documentaries on the civil rights movement. And I've been watching these documentaries on the civil rights movement to try to understand some things that, being vulnerable with you, some things that, that just don't naturally come to me to understand. I'm trying to understand them and some things that don't naturally come to me. And to be honest with you, there are some things in the civil rights movement that as a believer, they just don't sit well with me. But I'm trying very hard to understand not only how I see it, but how other people see it. I need to try to see it differently. Why? Because it's what my family needs from me, especially right now. A church historian quoted a Roman government spy who was sent to observe the early church, and the spy was quoted as saying, and my, how they love him, and how they love one another. That's compassion. That's feeling together. The third word on Peter's list is love one another. It's love one another. A good translation is love one another as brothers would. Why? Because that's who we are. We're brothers and sisters. Love one another as brothers and sisters would. I wonder, as Peter is writing this, if he may have had his brother Andrew in mind when he wrote it. Why? Because Andrew was the one that would bring Peter to Jesus. I think about my own blood family, my own sister. I was adopted, but she's, she's like blood family to me. She is literal family to me. We had Lots of arguments, just like my oldest two had their own arguments. We had our own disagreements when we were growing up together, but I also fought for her, not just against her. I remember one specific, uh, one specific instance, and she was getting picked on in school. I got called to the principal's office because I told this kid I was literally going to take him behind the woodshed and whoop his butt for picking on my sister. You see, in the body of Christ, we don't view each other as a stranger. We don't view each other as somebody I just met, as an acquaintance, as a distant relative. We view each other as close family. And so when Peter's writing this, I have no doubt that he had an unbelieving world in mind. How can we love people outside the church if we're not doing a good job of loving those brothers and sisters on the inside of the church? In fact, the Bible says it's actually a mark of salvation. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love our brothers. There's a fourth word on Peter's list. And that word is compassionate. It's an interesting word. The original Greek carries this idea of your intestines, your kidneys, your guts, your heart, your liver. In the South, we have a word for it. We call it uh, pudding. We actually eat it. And uh, I don't have to describe that for you this morning, but it's really good on grits. And I'm just telling you, it's amazing. And so we call it pudding. But, but the original Greek uh, refers to this idea when it talks about compassion, talks about your insides, your intestines, your kidneys, your guts, your heart, your liver. It's not a, it's not a word about your conduct. It's not a word about your conduct. It's a word about your insides, literally your innards, your belly. The literal translation of the Greek here means to have good bowels. In other words, to be well disposed to each other in your deep. The ancient world believed that the deepest emotions resided 
in the intestinal region. And so we communicate the same thing today, don't we? We probably shouldn't think theologically this way, but, but our culture communicates this way. So what is your gut saying to you? You probably understand this to be true if I ask some of you to stand on stage today and just share immediately what God's been speaking to you or, or preach to our entire congregation. You would immediately feel it in your gut. We call it the butterflies, or some of you would call it, I feel like I need to puke. We understand what compassion is getting at here. The word is hard to translate, but it essentially means that we should be deeply concerned for each other. And I just want to say to us this morning that I'm grateful to be a part of a church that I really believe this is true of us. Um, I've I've received messages from you. I've, I've heard from you when our body is suffering, when you felt it in your gut that you needed to care for other people. I've, I've received the text messages that said, I know this person's car just broke down. I would like to, I don't think you need to handle it. I'm gonna, I wanna send you a check for several thousand dollars to help them buy a car. I know this person is sick. I don't need you. I'm going, I'm going to take care of it, I believe. And I'm grateful to be a part of a church that I really believe this is the description of who we are. We are a compassionate People. There are always outliers in every church, and there always will be. But for the most part, I believe this is a good description of who we are as a church. And I want to commend you and encourage you and say, that's how I see us as a church. Peter uses a fourth word, a, a fifth word, and we don't need to parse it very long this morning because we talked about it last week, and that word is humble. It's a word, it's hard, it, it would have been hard to resonate with the Roman Empire because the Romans were a lot like we as Americans. They're conquerors, they're, they're self-confident, they're full of swagger. And so when Peter uses this word humble, it's sort of this countercultural commitment. It's the same today, especially in this town. In fact, it's hard to find quotes on humility. If you go out and you're preaching a message on humility, you want to instruct somebody in humility, it's hard to find quotes on humility outside of pastors and theologians. It's not an idea that's very common in our cultures. The reason for it is because it's an assertion that we are utterly dependent on God. For everything, and apart from God, apart from God, we're fragile, and apart from God, we're vulnerable. Humility makes us less pushy. It makes us less aggressive. One great preacher said, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. You know it to be true. We typically overestimate ourselves and underestimate other people. We underestimate their abilities. We underestimate their capabilities. And so Peter gives us these five things. One way, how we should think, and then he gives us four ways, how we should feel towards each other. You're probably not surprised by any of these this morning, but now Peter is going to close this, how we should interact together with with a a little bit more difficult command. It gets a little harder this morning. Peter says, think this way. He says, feel this way. Now, in verse 9, Peter's going to say, and now you need to act this way towards one another. Let's read it together. Verse 9 says, do not repay evil with evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. You have a calling on your life. We have a calling on our life as a family to bless people. 
The context of 1 Peter here is the context of a people group who are suffering persecution, intense persecution. Probably placed them in high-pressure situations. They were probably tense. They were probably a little bit edgy. They were probably jumpy. They were probably difficult to live with. Doesn't that describe the last three and a half months? And so in the context of what they were walking through and what we are walking through, Peter says to them, the Christian is not to return evil with evil. That is, you don't give back what you received. You don't exchange a one-for-one dialogue. As Christians, the Bible is clear, we are never to retaliate. Now, I don't have to say this, but you understand it to be true. This is a very difficult thing to do. And the only way we can respond to this command from Peter is through the power of the spirit of the living God. And so Peter makes a statement here that was borrowed by, gratefully borrowed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement. And Peter says the best way to conquer hate is through love. It's a biblical mandate on how to deal with hate. It makes you wonder if when Peter is writing this narrative here, when he's writing these instructions, it makes you wonder if Peter wrote this and had a painful memory. I wonder if Peter was thinking about the night in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. You remember that night? Peter's arrested in the garden. Jesus is arrested in the garden. Peter takes out his sword. It's a good thing that Peter was a fisherman and not a soldier that night because Peter makes an attempt to cut off the soldier's head, but instead he cuts off the soldier's ear instead. And then we remember what Jesus said to Peter when he cut the guy's ear off. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. In other words, Peter, this is not how we fight. Don't you think Peter had this in mind? Uh, just to be honest with you, it feels a little more like our tendency more times than not. It feels just like how we respond too often. And may I say to us this morning, this is something that's easy to preach and it's harder to learn. And may I say it's even harder to practice. It's happened to you before. It's happened to me before. It's maybe even happened to you in the context of the body of Christ before. And maybe this morning... You have not felt hate directly from somebody. Maybe you're feeling it indirectly. Maybe you've seen something somebody else said and you're feeling there's hate from a people group from you. Maybe you are experiencing it directly from somebody this morning in your family, in this family, in our community, in your neighborhood. Maybe you're experiencing it directly from people this morning. As much as I disagree with much of the politics that happens in our state, there is one thing that I am, I am sympathetic towards our politicians in this season. And the reason I'm sympathetic is because of hate mail. 
I don't know if you've ever received hate mail, and maybe you may say, well, the politicians made these choices. They deserve the hate mail. But may I just say to you, if you've ever received hate mail, hate mail is hate mail. In the moment, you don't think, well, I deserve this, so this is justified. I'm glad they sent it to me. Hate mail is hate mail. We've got a guy in our church who's a writer for a very prominent newspaper in our town. He's described for me before what it's like, and he's described some of the hate mail that he's received from people from articles that he's written. I'm sympathetic towards our politicians in our state, those who are having to make difficult decisions because of the hate mail that they're receiving. And I know you've probably received something like that. I know I've received something like that. And I would love to tell you this morning that those politicians, myself, if you've experienced, I would love to say that all of us respond with these rosy thoughts and man, we're so glad you sent that to us because I know I'm really guilty here, but I'm often reminded of some of David's Psalms when he's calling on God to give revenge to his enemies. That's honestly how I think sometimes. When David says in Psalm 10, 15, break the arm of the wicked man. <laughs> he says in Psalm 17, 13, rise up, Lord, and confront them and bring them down. And then there's a personal favorite from Psalm chapter 58, verse 6. When we receive hate mail, David says, break the teeth in their mouths, O God. If you're new to church this morning, ain't God good? Isn't he good this morning? <laughs> That's honestly how I feel a lot of times. I'm sure that's how most of us feel. That's how most of us want to respond. We want to respond with evil for evil. Sometimes I wonder if God looks at us when we pray prayers like that. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to pretend like you didn't even pray that. And when another Christian makes difficult, stinging, sharp remarks to us that leave a deep wound, the Bible is clear that the Christian is not to speak back in an evil way. He's to follow the example of Christ. And this is where our opportunity is today. We all have three choices. We can return evil for good, evil for good. Good was done to you and you respond with evil. That's a satanic response. The second option is we can respond with evil for evil or good for good. That's honestly the human response, how we naturally respond. You do something great for me, I'll do something great for you. You do something bad to me, I'll do something bad for you. That's a human response. But the Christian response and the biblical response is to return good for evil. The Old Testament provided a law that said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Pastor Matt, why do we even have such a law? Because it would escalate further if we did not. And by the way, that's the basis for justice, not only in our country, but it's the basis for justice in other countries as well. But listen to me, Christian, this morning. We operate on a different system. We operate on a system that's different from a system of justice. We operate on a system of mercy, not giving what you deserve. Why do we operate on that system? Because that's how God deals with us. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other cheek as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15 says, See that no one repays one another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Jesus has this way of flipping the way the world thinks, doesn't he? You know why? Because Jesus doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. That's grace. Not giving us what we do deserve is mercy. And that's what the body of Christ needs. That's what our family needs. Our family needs this from us in this season. We are not a perfect people. We're not a people without fault. We bring our own wounds, we bring our own personalities into the family. And we're not perfect, but may I say to us this morning, we are, we're forgiven. And it's this gospel idea that Jesus forgave me when I didn't deserve to be forgiven. He gave me something I didn't deserve, and not only that, but he did not give me something that I did deserve. It's through this lens that we see Jesus on the cross, that we are to respond in the family of Christ as well. I hope that our church will continue to be this type of people, this type of people where people are free to, to come home, free to be a part of the body of Christ. May this be a place where people from every ethnicity, every tribe, every tongue, every socioeconomic status, may they be free to come home because this is who we are as a family. And if we're going to feel like family, we need to think this way. We need to feel this way. And we need to act this way towards one another. Now may I say to the rest of us this morning who may not be a part of the family of God, maybe you've not come home to Jesus yet. Maybe you've never come to him and confessed your sins to him. Maybe you've never come to him and asked you to ask him to save you from your sins. I want you to understand this morning that you're not a part of the family of God simply because somebody in your family was or is. You're not a part of the family of God because culturally you lived around Christianity. You're a part of the family of God because you come to Jesus and ask him to give you something that you don't deserve and to not give you something that you do deserve. And you come to him and you say, Jesus, I'm aware that my sins have separated me from you. I'm aware that my sins cause me it should cause me to be separated from you for eternity. But Jesus, I'm asking you, I'm asking you to give me something I don't deserve. If you've never come to that place in your life and asked for forgiveness, I want to ask you to come into the family of God today. There's nothing magical or mystical about it this morning. And if you'd like to know more about confessing your sins and coming before Jesus and admitting who you are as a sinner and asking him to forgive you, our staff would love to help you begin that relationship with Jesus. Enter into the family of God. There's a couple ways you can, 
you can engage with that. Number one, you can text Story City all together. Text Story City to 24587. 24587. One of our staff members is standing by and they would love to respond and help you begin a new relationship with Jesus. You can also comment if you're on Facebook and one of our staff members will follow up with you and help you begin a new relationship with God. Church, let us think this way. Let us feel this way. And let us act this way. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your instruction to us and for us. God, thank you in spite of us. You loved us. You forgave us. You gave us something we did not deserve. You withheld something we did deserve. And God, because of your grace, because of your mercy, may we be a family, a people, respond the same way to each other. We need family. In Jesus' name.